The concept of the green economy is nothing new. But what do we actually have to do right now in order to build that green economy of the future? In this series, we've been asking brilliant minds to discuss how we approach that. And today, we're honing in on what the actual economy bit of that looks like. Hello, welcome to the fifth episode of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. I'm Gemma Milne, a science writer, podcaster and researcher. And in Looking Glass, we want to examine the details of how the world works and what can make it better. Challenging conversations about our society, exploring ideas and innovations across disciplines to create a blueprint for our future world. So far this series, we've zoomed in on some of the essential components of what a green economy might require. We've heard from scientists and experts on the possible solutions and opportunities, and it sounds pretty good. So in this episode, we're stepping away from those ideas and solutions and instead speaking to two women embedded in the world of policy and economic structure to ask how we make space for the work of scientists. What needs to shift in order to make a green economy happen? And what could it, or indeed should, it look like? Farhana Yemen is an unparalleled environmental lawyer who has represented the interests of small island nations in global environmental agreements. She is responsible for the presence of a net zero target in the Paris Agreement and played a key role in building the High Ambition Coalition, which advances the climate positive work of 35 countries. Anne Pettifer is a leading economist who advises governments and organisations. She is director of Prime, policy research in macroeconomics, and is the author of several books, including The Case for the Green New Deal. A heads up, you'll hear Anne refer to ODA a few times in this conversation. She's talking about official development assistance, which is a measure of international aid flow. I started by asking Anne what a green economy means for her. So I think a green economy is one which uh, operates within ecological limits. The the task is then to measure what the ecological limits are uh, and then to calculate the economic activity uh, within those limits. For me, that's what it's about. It's all about the finite nature of the ecosystem and how we cannot operate beyond its boundaries. So, you know, delusional ideas about expanding the pie or growing the economy are delusional. Uh, But having said that, I think we will always have economic activity. Um, I think it's going to be a very different kind of activity. Uh, Services will be far more important than than manufacturing, say. Um, And that's going to be really good. And I'm I'm hoping that it will be a full employment uh, economy, i.e. that we're going to have to substitute human labour for fossil fuels. So whereas in you know we've been driving around in cars, in future we'll be cycling or you know using our own labor if you like to get about, um, using our own labor to grow our own food, using our own labor uh, to grow our own clothing and so on. Um, and, and in that sense, uh, a, a sound green economy is also going to be one that's more self-sufficient and less dependent on the exploitation of others, especially of people in the South. That's a, that's a good point to move on to you, Farhana. There was lots there you said, Anne, that we're going we're gonna to pick apart. But for now, Farhana, I'd love to uh, get you to answer the same question. What do you consider a green economy and, and what's the sort of backbone? Well, I think a good economy serves the um, needs of the people to secure their dignity, their well-being in every sense, um, and to live in a... Uh, uh, a way that is harmonious with each other and with nature, which is the sort of green part. 
Um, and I don't think we can uh, underestimate that well-being is composed of many different things. It isn't just composed of stuff that we need, houses or food or um, uh, transport to get around, but also our mental health is really important. So having uh, job security, having security, peace of mind, having a safe society in which you live, having equal opportunities, all of those things are part of what I would define as a good economy, uh, an economy that doesn't secure or allow people to flourish in every sense is not a good economy. And a green economy, a good green economy is one that respects the ecological limits, it respects nature, it respects that uh, people all over the world have an equal right to flourish and so that we cannot uh, conduct the global economy in, in ways or secure our own well-being at the expense of others. Uh, and finally, I think, um, you know, I, I was uh, uh, came into uh, my profession at the height of the Brundtland Report, which defined sustainable development as the, um, the needs to secure the present and future generations have an, an equal um, say, an equal right uh, in, in the in the benefits of the economy. So we should also remember that who comes after us, you know, we must preserve and protect uh, uh, and leave as good as we've got, if not better. So those are sort of key components for me of what I would define as a good a good economy. So the idea of a circular economy is usually part and parcel of a Green New Deal, or at least the thinking around what makes up uh, the future in terms of how we are more sustainable and, and so on and so forth. Is this a good model to be thinking about? You know, and I know that you your opinion is that we should be sort of shrinking the circle um, to kind of stick with the circular um, and spherical theme, shall we say. Um, and let's start with you and get your opinion on this. So the pandemic has taught us that we've exceeded the boundaries of the ecosystem. You know, we've invaded the habitats of, of creatures um, and, and, and the result has been this infection, this virus. So we've got to pull back. Um, we've, we've exceeded the capacity of the ecosystem to tolerate our, our existence. So, uh, you know, we have to become more self-sufficient uh, we have to transform our living standards. I think, you know, our quality of life will improve, but our level of consumption must completely shrink, basically. We can't go on consuming the way we do. I, I was brought up in a small gold mining town in South Africa, and when I was growing up, uh, the gold had been discovered and it was a boom town. If you go to it today, it's a ghost town. Why? Because there is a finite amount of gold in those seams at, in, in, at the bottom of, you know, the, these great mine shafts. And it's that nation, na notion of finite. You know, we think that we can go on exploiting the Congo and other countries uh, to get hold of the, the, the minerals that we need for our new tech. Well, that's delusional. We can't, you know. Um, so so I, I, and I think a circular economy where we're reusing, we're, I, I'm working on something called worn technologies at the moment, which is the idea of reusing textiles, of breaking textiles down and reusing them. You know, the, the idea that we, we're we more self-sufficient, that we live within our limits, that's going to have to be the new model. And it's going to require, in my view, a much greater sense of self-sufficiency at, at, at a community and at a regional and also at a national level. While at the same time, we're going to want to coordinate and Co cooperate and work together. Nevertheless, 
You know, I always describe it in this way. We're going to have to learn to grow our own green beans. Right now, we expect Kenya to grow green beans, to draw on their water table, to exploit their labor cheaply, and then for them to fly those green beans across the world and to our dinner table 365 days a year. That's got to stop. We're going to have to grow our own green beans in our own backyard and and eat seasonally and slow and have slow food and so on and so forth and it'll be very rewarding well, one of the those value systems uh, that i've been sort of highlighting is the concept of the settler mentality that you know where where once you've exhausted your own immediate land space you go and claim more from somewhere else and this idea has been fundamental to the way in which Europe expanded. It was the basis of the the wars in in the European continent, and it went, you know, to the heart of why we colonized other countries. And it's at the heart of now thinking about let's colonize other planets or let's, you know, get resources and minerals from asteroids and from Antarctica and open up all the pristine wilderness spaces that we have right now are still under huge amounts of threats. So, you know, as we melt the Arctic, you know, we're already there's a game on for getting yet gold, oil, gas, fuels from the 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 mineral rich uh, regions that are still pristine wilderness places so that mentality has to change and i think it can change by us naming it for a start like i am doing right now and saying where it comes from and then shaming it hopefully and then putting in place new principles of the circular economy new legal principles that require full material responsibility you produce a product you are at the end of the day responsible for reclaiming it recycling it all the way we are not going to do that by a landfill or chuck it out into some other country to do that every car has to be recyclable by the manufacturer of the car, for example, including all the fine, precious minerals. There is no way that we don't have enough of those already here if we recycle, reduce and, and repurpose. It's not that this planet is not enough. It's just that the, the abundance is distributed in a very unequal amount. And we need to, as I said, re, rethink how we came to this point in history and re, rechange it and put in different legal rules and principles to oblige people now to 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 accept that is there is a finite capacity on this planet and we should treasure um all of the all of the resources that earth provides and use them well i think both of your i guess uh, definitions and also visions of what this this green economy this good economy um might look like has both elements of positivity and optimism and and it feels like something that sort of it's obvious that we would want this and then there's obviously other elements that feel um when you first say it like gosh that that's going to be hard that's going to be difficult there's going to be opposition to this so during the last few episodes we've been hearing a lot about you know ideas and solutions that either exist now or could exist in the future that wear it for more political pressure or business impetus um we would we would able to be able to have and be able to kind of achieve this vision of this uh, future green economy um now i'd love to know your your take on this in terms of what you see as the sort of key components that are standing in the way of achieving 
um, this change or this vision that both of you have, have presented? What or who is it that's holding us back, Anne? So I believe it's the international architecture, the international system. We've designed a system. Uh, we've designed an international financial architecture which is designed to suit the interests of wealth, i.e. the 1% or the 10%. And that has to change. That stands in the way of change. It's very hard. You know, I'm thinking of the pandemic at the moment. How do we tackle the pandemic? Well, tackling the pandemic requires international coordination and cooperation. The international architecture prevents that from happening because it prioritizes the interests of for example, in this case, Big Pharma, you know, the pharmaceutical companies. So their interests come ahead of the interests of humanity and of the ecosystem. And the system is designed for that to happen. One of the things that I feel strongly about is we mustn't pretend it's happened spontaneously or it's a natural evolution of something or other. It isn't. It has been designed to serve the interests of the 10% or the, the top 1%. So we have to restructure the international financial architecture. And the international financial architecture prevents countries from acting autonomously in many, many ways. And in particular, I'm thinking of country, I'm South African born. I watch poor South Africa struggling with the international financial system, with the capital flows that flood the country one minute and, and exit the next and force the currency to become volatile, make foreign debts very expensive. But above all, by undermining the currency, makes the ability of South Africa's government to buy um, vaccines from big pharmaceuticals very difficult. Now, that is not an accident. You know, it's designed that way. I, I keep wanting to stress this point. So for me, the very first task is to change the international architecture. And then people say, oh, that, as you would say, Derma, that's going to be really challenging and very difficult. But we have done it in the past. We did it in 1933 when Roosevelt's administration uh, unilaterally dismantled the gold standard, which was the architecture of the day, which suited the interests of the banks of the day. And he transformed that overnight, mainly because the United States is a big economy and it could do that. And then in 1945, we created the Bretton Woods system, which was a system of collaboration, coordination across the world. And that was deliberately dismantled in the first instance by President Nixon and later by Thatcher. And so, you know, unfortunately, because we're often so focused on the domestic economy and on our local politicians and policymakers and how wicked and hopeless they are, we forget that they are boxed in by this international architecture that actually it's designed, you know, precisely to, uh, to prioritise the interests of those who operate beyond our boundaries and, and doesn't really much care about what happens within the boundaries. So that's my first blockage and then I, the blockage that I think we have to tackle. You, you said um, we have done this before. We have made this change before. So when I'm saying who or what is it that's holding us back, you know, is it one president or the presidents or is it the populace in terms of their voting blocks is it is it you know communicators making sure we don't we get this information out so that we change the way you know we have who we have in charge you know who who is the we in in this case the we in this case are the decision makers and they are the policy makers they are the central bankers the treasury officials and the politicians um 
you know, the people at the IMF, the World Bank and so on, the UN at the United Nations. But, you know, they don't can't do anything uh, unless there is pressure from below. And so it is we in the sense that it's something we have to demand. And I feel very strongly about this. You know, I led a campaign, Jubilee 2000, for the cancellation of the debts of 35 of the poorest countries. And we demanded that those debts be cancelled because those countries couldn't afford to repay and, and were having to starve their people, if you like, to repay rich creditors. Um, but ultimately, the decisions were taken by the Paris Club of Creditors, i.e. G8 governments in Paris, at the Paris Treasury or the IMF and the World Bank. So, you know, that's the process, but we are all involved in it. And and part of the reason why I feel so strongly about the international architecture is that they, the big powers that be, won't change it until we talk about that far more and demand that transformation. Amazing. Thank you, Anne. Let's go to you, Farhana, on the, this same question about what it is that's holding us back. I mean, in your in your answer when I asked you what, what this green good economy um, looks like, you talked a lot about um, wellness, but also considering um, everybody, all people who are affected in all corners of the globe. So um, this is quite a positive vision, I would say, of, of an economy, regardless of um of, of who you are and, and whatnot. So what would you say is holding us back from doing the thing that actually sounds pretty good? I certainly agree that the international architecture and rules and policy frameworks are really um, critical. I couldn't say otherwise. I'm a lawyer and very familiar. And Anne is quite right that, you know, the incumbents of offices, whether they're presidents or CEOs or uh, your MPs, are rule-bound you know, they are rule bound for them for the large part, or we'd like them to be. But I think even more important than that, uh, institutional architecture, the rules, the procedures, the, 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 the policy frameworks are the values and the principles which orientate and on which sit these systems. So actually what's wrong and what's the real blockage is that our values and and principles are completely out of kilter with the vision that Anne and I have described at the beginning as components of a a good green economy. Our values at the moment don't value nature in every sense. In a monetary way, we don't price uh, the value of what we're destroying. We don't value uh, in a moral and ethical way uh, the, the contributions, for example, to preserving that nature that is made for, from indigenous peoples to local farmers, to those who are preserving biodiversity, for example. We don't value those things. We don't value the contribution in counting in billions and trillions that insects make, um, which our, our entire food systems rely on. We don't value those things because they're invisible assets that are not part of the capitalist economy and we value competition as the main engine for prosperity, for achieving prosperity. And prosperity we have defined in a very narrow way to mean economic, material, uh, uh, growth-led uh, ways of uh, producing producing goods and services. So I would I would say that it's fundamentally those values and principles of of extraction, of consumerism, of waste, of not. Uh, valuing uh, nature, of of uh, of um, making a distinction between 
uh, us and them, uh, uh, certain groups of people who are valued and certain others who are not valued. Are, maybe they're not citizens or maybe they are refugees or maybe they're migrants or maybe they're black and brown people over there. But now we, well, now we know that COVID has taught us that a lot of those people are key workers and we didn't value them. We you know, gave them a pittance in terms of salary. And in fact, um, our systems didn't reflect uh, what is the most important to societal and individual well-being and health? Uh, and I think that the orientation of our uh, our economies is uh, only going to work if we have this much bigger shift, which I see is happening now um, in terms of our values and principles. So we accept that cooperation is actually fundamental to societal well-being to economic well-being to individual well-being that it's not all dog eat dog and you know competition will secure you the best what role then does the solutions that are often touted for tackling the environmental crisis uh, you what do they play whether it's tech solutions or technocratic solutions um, or maybe laws that are trying to address things in arguably quite a small way in some sense, you want to say it's not a zero-sum game, right? We should have that as well as working on the values and working on the activism and working on the, um, you know, changing the messaging and so on and so forth. But then at the same time, the the sort of narrative a lot of a lot of these sticking plaster solutions is that we can kind of have a, you know, a greener version of capitalism. And, and as Anne was saying earlier on, this idea that we can kind of keep, just keep expanding and make it, we have this limitless thing, we can solve it. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe we're, we're, a lot of people are quite used to the idea of capitalism and that might be a very difficult thing, arguably to sort of shift or break out of in, in the same way that you're talking about these, these values. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear both your thoughts on how you see these, um, shall we say, short-term technocratic solutions, sticky blaster solutions versus these bigger shifts that that need to happen. Farhana, let's start with you. I think capitalism and the Industrial Revolution succeeded because in part, you know, the thing that was being produced, food or transport or heavy machinery or you know, was genuinely only possible through large-scale investments. They couldn't be done at the the home level or the community level or the cottage industries. That's what we used to call them, cottage industries, because they could work from people's uh, homes. And the textile industry, for example. So, uh, you know, my, my mother was a, was a seamstress. And even when we came to this country, we you know, sewed clothes, actually. So we were still part of the garment producing industry in the 70s that the the UK was. And eventually, I think what we're learning is a lot of economic activity that was only concentrated in these very large, what became transnational corporations that were, you know, then free of taxes and so forth, were were, it's not not necessary now. We have got different ways of, of... communicating, connecting, peer-to-peer businesses, individuals have far more as a result of technological gain as well. We can do microgrids. We can generate our own power. People can, you know, put up a solar panel either in their individual home or in a village, have a, a wind turbine. So actually energy, which was one of the most concentrated forms, you know, you had to 
build gigantic power stations or invest in uh, gas and oil and very uh, complex uh, operations that only a handful of players could do, you can now do that much more widely. So the means of production, sounding a bit Marxist here, are now much more dispersed. And actually, that's where the biggest resistance is coming. And that's where the most exciting developments in this good economy for me are coming, because we can go back to the local scale again. Uh, We can have far more of what we need produced uh, um, and delivered and made all around us. You know, there's it's not just, you know, posh middle class people who want to bake bread and grow their own food. It's actually it's always been done by the poorest communities they have in their their community gardens and through their own allotments and so forth. There's a, a, a very vivid and vibrant culture of of poorer communities uh, making making sure that their own uh, people, their own localities and their local communities' needs are looked after. You know, capitalism we know can change rapidly. And the reason we know that is because just a year ago or 18 months ago, capitalism was nationalised, essentially. Wall Street and the City of London were nationalised. Without the backing of central banks, which in turn are backed by you know, government treasuries and taxpayers. Tax, you know, if, if, if the central bank didn't have backing it up 30 million British taxpayers, it couldn't issue new liquidity. Malawi, for example, doesn't have a central bank with 30 million taxpayers and therefore it has a currency that has very little value and isn't able to issue QE, et cetera, et cetera. So we found capitalism transformed overnight. And I have to say the 1% were very happy with that because they did very well out of it, right? So for this to be a just transition, I think it's really vital for us to rethink the way we tackle this crisis. And the way we're thinking about it now, and I'm across the spectrum, we're thinking about changing behaviour, individual behaviour, changing communities. You know, We're thinking about it at that level. Um, and uh, we're thinking about everybody has to change. And so, you know, we get lectured from on high by the, 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 the almighty who say, well, we've all got to change our habits and we've all got to. And, the, and in my view, we should be thinking about it differently. We should be thinking about uh, reducing emissions by targeting the top 10% responsible for 50% of all emissions. Now, I read the Financial Times faithfully, and this last weekend in their supplement, which is called How to Spend It, was a four or five-page supplement on yachts, super yachts, right? And um, they explained that this year, uh, 494 super yachts have been built in contrast to last year, when only 314 super yachts were built, and that it takes $500,000 to fill one super yacht full of fuel, right? So now when we are sort of walking around saying, oh, we think you've got to change your lifestyle, the little people have to change their lifestyles, and we leave this lifestyle intact. And, and, and I'm with Kevin Anderson here, who is the physicist at the Ten- Tyndall Centre, who argues very powerfully, in my view, that for us to begin a just transition, we have to start with the top 1% and the top 10%. You know, Bill Gates goes to these UN meetings uh, on, you know, uh, new targets for emissions in his own private jet, Right. And he thinks that's fine because he's doing good, apparently, somewhere else. And I, I think it's just not acceptable, you know. So um, 
So I think I would like us to rethink the way in which we tackle this this crisis and the way in which we bring down emissions. And instead of just talking very generally and in a sort of scattergun approach that everybody's got to change, we should start by targeting the 1%, the 10%. So Kevin Anderson argues that if we tackle the top 10%, we could reduce emissions by a third within a year. Uh, and if we just if we just brought down their emissions to the level of emissions generated each year by the average European, we would bring about a massive reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So I want us to think in that way. I want to come to you, Farhana, to to kind of build on this point about just transition. Um, you know, it, it's clear both from Anne's answer here, but also just generally when you start looking at things that people at the bottom are the ones who are going to suffer most if we continue on our current path. And, you know, and even if we do start to make change towards this green economy that isn't thoughtfully done in the way that we're describing, how do we ensure that these people are being represented um, as we make this shift, not just considered, um, not just, you know, ensure that we're thinking about them, but how are they represented in terms of being part of that conversation? And this concept of, I think, just transition is very, very useful. It started off um, sort of about 10 years ago or so um, and was really focusing on um, those workers and those sectors whose jobs were threatened by environmental regulation, i.e. whose jobs were um, you know, at stake from moving to a greener, a greener alternative. And over time, I think that a much broader and better understanding of a just transition is, as I'm sitting here with a document on this uh, very thing, um, just transition really refers to an economy-wide process that produces plans and policies and and investments that lead to a future where all jobs are green and decent and where emissions are zero, poverty is eradicated and communities are thriving and resilient, not just in one country but across the world. So I think that way of looking at a just transition is really about a transition that we all want to make globally and must make in an interrelated way. Um, and I think that this ties in with this global dimensions, you know, the uh, in general, I've spent my 30 years negotiating these climate treaties and the fundamental principle of these treaties, all of them, is that the the North, the richer Western countries, including the former Soviet bloc countries, they take the leadership in cutting their emissions and leading the way on technological innovation, on behaviour, on lifestyles, on luxury emissions and so forth. And that hasn't happened. What they've done is mainly shift a bit through through cleaner technologies, but basically outsource all their dirty um, manufacturing uh, to other countries whose territorial emissions are then counted as the the, the producers of this country, while we say, oh, um, our economy is uh, is pretty green because we just mainly do services. You know, we do financial services. That's where our money comes from. And we don't recognize that actually the goods that we're buying are produced in India, China, Indonesia. The food that we're able to enjoy and eat in this country is the result of deforestation and and land grabs of other people's lands and nature destructions. Let's talk about how we're going to pay for all this. Um, and lots of your theory um, is around debt um, and, you know, thinking about changing the way we think about debt to enable a green economy um, to get going a bit quicker. Tell us, tell us a bit about that and tell us where the money's going to come from. The great thing about the pandemic is that we discovered there is a magic money tree. Um, so, people, you know, politicians cannot go on provoking us by saying that actually there is no money 
the only money is your money pointing at our pockets and taxes and so on. We've developed monetary systems over centuries to enable us to do what we can do. But the monetary system is being captured. Uh, it's being captured by a very small group who, who manipulate it in their interests. And we need it to work for, for society as a whole, in particular for the ecosystem. So what the monetary system enables us to do is simply gives us a mechanism whereby we can exchange with each other. We can do things, you know, we can do what we can do. And we are limited in what we can do. We're limited by finite ecological resources. We're limited by our own lack of intelligence, basically. <laughs> and, and, you know, there are limits to what we can do, but they're not monetary. The monetary system exists to enable us to do what we can do. And it worked perfectly during the pandemic. It showed us that the the bank, the government through the Bank of England is able to generate the money needed to put people on furlough and keep the show on the road as much as possible. But for the monetary system to be stable and to be viable, um, we it is a process of give and take. It is a system of obligations and of fulfilling obligations. So we know that, you know, all money is created when a bank makes a loan. But when a bank makes a loan... It's giving away money. It's creating money out of thin air, if you like. But there is an obligation to repay that loan. And, you know, for me, what's really critical in that arrangement is the rate of interest on the loan. If the rate of interest is high, then the person having to repay has to exploit labor and exploit the ecosystem even more intensively to repay the loan. So I'm I'm very much in favor of Islamic fundamentals when it comes to interest rates. You know, they should be as low as possible. But the, but the central bank through the government would generate the money that we need to do what we can do. What's then important, in my view, is to create employment. And the reason why employment is important is that employment generates income. And income generates revenues, including tax revenues for the government, which helps to repay uh, the, the financing. So what the government is doing right now, for example, and we're hearing from the Treasury, well, we, we spent all this money, we saved the economy, we saved the people, we saved the NHS, and now we're going to tax you all in order to make that pay. Well, that's ridiculous because, first of all, if you're not going to worry about whether I have a job and whether I have a, a decent enough job that enables me to pay tax or whether I'm in some precarious job, then forget about it. You're not going to get taxes out of me, right? So that for me, the government's priority now ought to be to start uh, in creating jobs and paying people decent salaries. And I mean that in particular in relation to key workers, into, and those are mainly women and social people working on social care and so on and so forth. So, so the point is that's the way, you know, if the economy would become, if you like, labour-intensive, and that labour-intensive economy, which is ecologically more sustainable, it means we'll be doing less. We'll certainly be consuming a lot less. Um, but we will have a sustainable, uh, in financial terms, because we'll have generated the employment that generates income that enables uh, us to fulfil our obligations. Frahana, come in on that as well. And a, a, a leading authority on this, but I, I want to stress the position of the global South uh, and especially smaller and poorer countries. So not all governments can can print money, whether digital or otherwise. This 
the ability for our governments to draw on the wealth, to draw on the robustness and credibility of our financial system comes from centuries of an economy that built up its wealth based on colonialism and imperialism. And that power is at the central heart of an inequitable financial system. It's still at the heart of the inequitable financial system that is underpinned by the World Bank and the IMF and so forth. My point at the beginning was that's the design and it's deliberate and it's exploitative. And one of the things we really have to do is to transform that. You know, and that's why that is the first thing that I would do. But, um, you know, you can't do it. I don't believe that ODA will change that. You know, ODA, in a sense, says, oh, you've got us into debt and now you better give us some money to help us out of that. And I'm in favour of ODA, but it's not the answer. The answer is structural. Why can't Malawi generate its own currency and, and its own income? Its, its people are as capable as we are. Why can't South Africa do that? Why can't Nigeria do that? You know, why can't Indonesia do that? To, why, why this dependence on the dollar? And how, is that an accident? Of course it's not an accident. It's utterly deliberate. And that was a brilliant, comprehensive 101 on the on 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 the monetary system. Never mind, just on green economy. Thank you, Anne, for that. Let's. Um, I've got one final question for you both, and it'll be interesting to hear considering the conversation we've had. I think is is veered in one direction, perhaps. Um, but how hopeful do you feel about the direction that we're going in, or rather, how hopeful do you feel that we might be able to change the direction um, that we're going for Hannah? I have wobbly days, but on the whole, I feel um, the direction of travel is is unequivocally towards a more just society, towards a more equal society. I think, and I would like to believe that we've reached, you know, peak inequality. That doesn't mean that those in power will will just throw their hands up and say the game's up. They won't. We need to demand. And, and and make many more us and change and shift our political system to make that happen. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm buoyed uh, by all over the world. People are, you know, already taking the assets they have, their labour, their creativity, their ingenuity, coming up with all sorts of ideas to, to make their neighbourhoods um, beautiful and work worthwhile and and sometimes opting out you know is a really big signal so refusing to work for employers or shareholders demanding you know that companies change tack and become more responsible uh, and less attractive so all over the world i see um uh, that happening and um yeah that gives me hope um it, it means that we must also intensify uh, those demands and those struggles, whether it's litigation, shareholder action, politics, uh, making changes at the local economy, establishing a local climate hub, um, action is happening everywhere. And I think it's um, it's going to to change. And same question to you. How how hopeful are you feeling? I'm by nature an optimist and, and I've seen transformation through through civil society uprisings and movements. You know, I lived through the anti-apartheid. I never thought that the um, the walls of apartheid could be torn down, and they were, you know. Um, and so I, I, I check myself when I think about this, but I'm actually quite pessimistic. I mean, I was reading a scientific paper yesterday on the sixth extinction, and by scientists who sounded desperate, 
uh, who who are so worried about the level of the the rate of extinction of species and the 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 cumulative effect of that and i feel you know a little bit like greta that you know we're not listening to these guys so so while i think we are capable of change and while i'm optimistic and i know your transformation is entirely possible i worry about the fact that we're not doing this quickly enough fast enough in order to ensure the survival of our civilization one thing i i've been thinking a lot about recently is around the sort of um the responsibility to be hopeful or the responsibility to be optimistic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm currently pregnant. It would be irresponsible to bring a child into the world if I wasn't optimistic about the direction uh, in which the, the, the world was going. But I, I agree. I think that there's, it's sometimes hard to see um, where that hope is, where that hope is going to come from. And for Hannah, I think you touched on some really uh, great places to go to and, and look to when perhaps you're having one of those wobbly days uh, that you mentioned. For Hannah and um, that's been a, an amazing discussion. Thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show. We've touched on so many areas, so many great, um, I guess, high level, brilliant um, contextual answers to some of these questions, as well as some real practical stuff. And I think it's, it, sometimes that's the difficulty with this topic is, is pairing the two of them together. So thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom, your expertise, and of course, your hope. Thank you. Thank you. My guests today were Farhana Yamin and Anne Pettifer. Thanks to both of them for joining us and arguing their perspectives so passionately. They've certainly mapped out pretty radical visions. Join us next time for the last episode of the series, where we'll be hearing from two physicists as they reflect on everything we've heard this series, including whether all these visions of a Green New Deal are actually the right thing right now. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Rosie Stouffer. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The researcher is Fatuma Kera. Original music and sound mix by Alex Portfelix. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. Later this year, the IOP will be launching a series of conversations co-produced with local communities that will explore the role of physics in our everyday lives, discussing the implications for all of us in creating an equitable green future. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. 